everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 78 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about the dark crystal on your Today the Ritual Gives No Comfort podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. And this week we are joined by Amanda, one of the hosts of the Wine and Three Quarters podcast, a podcast about fandom, growth, friends, stories, drinking, and maybe saving the world. <laughs> thank you. The inflection on that was perfect. Um, thank you guys for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I've been listening since shortly after you guys started Pop Culturally Deprived, aside from the Farscape episodes, because I haven't watched that series yet, and I don't want to be spoiled. Um, but I am thrilled to be here talking with you today about The Dark Crystal. Uh, it's fab having you on. Absolutely. And I think after we finish this episode, you should absolutely go start watching the farscape series mm. i mean clearly you like it's... puppets <laughs> it is definitely on my list i own it we're just a little busy with our podcast right now we're going through fringe and also the expanse <gasps> and that's taking a lot of my okay. time <laughs> fair enough yeah <laughs> I, th I think we can agree what watching tv as well as uh, podcasting does <laughs> it takes some time yes it does the Dark Crystal, I think, possibly even before we'd suggested it, this was like, oh, oh, what's that film? What's that film? I'll come and record that film. What's that film? What's that film? Um, why, why were you quite so excited for The Dark Crystal? I really wanted to talk about this show because, in large part, because I have some extreme nostalgia for it. I don't remember when I first saw it, but it's been part of my life when I was a child. It came out when I was five years old, so it's something I grew up with. I really love things that are twisted, and The Dark Crystal took the Muppets, which I love, and translated them into this warped fairy tale setting in a way that was terrifying and delightful. Um, and also, as someone who is a maker of things, I'm a knitter, I do some costuming, very minimal, um, but I'm totally captivated by the creativity and the artistic talent that is on display in this film. It's amazing. And I would love to go and see some of these creatures close up. Mm. Yeah, the the, the film, the, the way I keep describing it is technical marvel, and it is. like there's There's basically nothing in this that is a camera trick. It is all practical on screen in front of you so good yeah there's almost no special effects it's incredible when you think of the amount of just practical workmanship that went into mm. it absolutely um so seminal children's classic mandy <laughs> <laughs> how come you've never seen this i didn't know this movie existed until we started doing this podcast <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's how sheltered i was I mean, it, to be fair, it came out the same year I was born, so, like, clearly I didn't know about it then. <laughs> so it's super old. Oh. <laughs> I've already determined that 1980 movies are, like, the black hole in my life. But, yeah, I honestly had no idea this movie even existed. I had never heard of it. To put that in perspective, I had never heard of The Labyrinth until I was in high school. Okay, that puts it in perspective. That was uh, another childhood favorite of mine. <laughs> yeah, so so I did get on board the Labyrinth. Well, okay, no, that's not true. I've heard of and seen the Labyrinth. Can't say I got on board, but um, this one, it just it never came across my radar until people started suggesting it for the show. And I was like, I don't understand what this thing is. Okay, it's puppets. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think it's achieved a, a cult status over the years, too. Mm. Um, a lot of us have, you know, are familiar with it from our childhoods, from being immersed in Muppets, starting with Sesame Street and then the Muppet Show, and just really loving those creatures. And I think there's been a bit of a resurgence of that lately with some of the um, reality television shows like Face Off or Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And I think that's bringing about a resurgence of the interest in it. Mm. Yeah, I well, I definitely can tell it's super popular, at least among our online community. Uh, earlier this week when I was, I hadn't yet watched this movie yet, and I had some time to kill one night. And so I tweeted, should I watch The Dark Crystal or should I play Bioshock Infinite on the Xbox? Because I didn't know which one I wanted to do. And without fail, every single person said, uh, excuse me, go watch The Dark Crystal right now. <laughs> 
I did not go watch The Dark Crystal that night, but (laughs) that's what everybody suggested. So I I clearly figured out that this is something that people really like uh, and really enjoy. And part of that's because we know lots of sensible people who know you get your homework done early (laughs) so that your Saturday is free to party. Oh, is that what I got wrong? Okay. (laughs) Okay, The Dark Crystal is a fantasy film released in 1982. It was directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, and made with primarily animatronic or puppets to portray the characters, with Kiran Shah doing the physical performances for Jen, Kira, and Algra. The film was modestly successful initially. It was touted as family-friendly movie, but there were concerns about the darker elements of the film compared to the normal Muppet Show-type material, and it also came out in a very busy Christmas season. It went on to be relatively successful. It turned a profit at the box office that year. It was actually quite well-received in a number of international countries. International countries? In a number of (laughs) other countries. And got a better, better reception over the years since release. I read that this was the highest grossing film in both France and Japan in 1983. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I was surprised <laughs> at that. I don't, I don't know whether anything else big came out. that Like, oh, that's such a success because it beat out, you know, E.T., uh, which was its problem in America. Right. Or whether it was just, yeah, they released it in June when nothing else was coming out. <laughs> yeah. I know. It was mm. the 16th highest grossing film in the United States that year. Yeah, it eventually it went on, did okay. Yeah. Mm. A, a long tail, I think we'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there have always been ideas for a sequel to The Dark Crystal. A script was developed um, 25 years after the original came out. It was in and out of development since then, with the Henson Company never able to produce it. The plans were ultimately dropped, and that screenplay was turned into a comic book series called The Power of The Dark Crystal. There is a prequel series due to come out to due to come to Netflix uh, in 2018 or 19 called The Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance. It is currently in production in the UK. And Mandy, for anyone who's not watched it, who's listening to this, which is quite fun to hear that people listen even if they've not seen the film. Um, what is The Dark Crystal about? Well, I stole the synopsis straight from IMDb because I was having a hard time writing something concise. Um, So IMDb says, on another planet in the distant past, a Gelfling embarks on a quest to find the missing shard of a magical crystal and to restore order to his world. Yeah. (laughs) I I had a feeling you might go like a uh, a young person has to take a mystical object and walk across a country to destroy it in the place where it was made. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, that... Ah, I wish I had thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to describe quite a few movies. (laughs) Yeah. With with a trusty sidekick. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And meets interesting folks along the way. Um, How was everyone able to watch the film? Well, I own the Blu-ray version, the latest one that came out, the 35th anniversary, and it's beautiful. Mm. (laughs) Oh, I bet that is beautiful. Does it have any interesting additions, a second disc or anything? It does have a lot of special features. There's a commentary track with Brian Froud, which was really Mm. interesting to listen to, aside from one very problematic aspect of him using the M word to refer to the actors with dwarfism that portrayed some of the characters. Um, So just pointing out that that was a pretty problematic piece of the commentary. Um, The rest of it was really interesting. And they also have shots of the original video of the Skeksis speaking in the alien language Mm. before they translated everything to English. So that was particularly interesting for me to watch. Oh, I bet. Fascinating. (laughs) Uh, Mandy, where did you find it? Um, It's not available anywhere on any of the subscription services here. So it is only available to rent digitally. But luckily, this is one that joseph owns and so we have it in our house and i got to watch it that way hooray excellent (laughs) um it's only able to uh, it's only available to be rented in the uk as well on the digital platforms but i found the dvd in a secondhand dvd shop you're good find yeah you're getting really good at finding stuff in in your secondhand (laughs) shops (laughs) i i keep having to go to shops like 
over the last month or two. So it's just any time I'm out, I just pull up the like episode schedule. Okay, what are we doing? Okay, in two months we're doing that. I need to find the DVD now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although this one, they were really close to closing. Oh, this is an absolutely incidental story, but they were really close to closing. And the guy was taking ages finding the discs uh, in the back like cupboard thing. And eventually he comes out and he's like, I've got a disc and there's supposed to be two discs. And we had a look at it. And what seems to have happened is they had two copies once upon a time. Uh, a, a one disc version and two disc version and someone's bought the one disc version and be given the two discs from the two disc version oh. so for whatever reason oh. I only have the one disc I have the wrong edition but you still, still got, got the movie the, on it yeah. so that's okay yeah <laughs> hey ho <laughs> the, the voice actors uh, are not people who went on to do a huge amount of other stuff barring one exception uh, but the creators particularly Jim Henson and Frank Oz uh, should be well known Mandy what's your experience of them? Well, largely, like, okay, I've written four things down, two for each of them, and 50% of them are things I know because of the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> um, Jim Henson is the Muppets, so primarily the Muppet Babies, and of course we've now done Muppet Christmas Carol on the show. Um, and Frank Oz, I know him as Yoda, but he also directed Little Shop of Horrors. And I think that's all I got for those two. <laughs> okay. Which is good. Those are pretty important things. Yeah. The the film itself uh, is high fantasy aimed at a younger audience uh, involving puppets and non-human creatures. So examples of other things like this, Labyrinth, The NeverEnding Story, and of course, Farscape, uh, made by the Henson Company. So what's your experience of other types of things like that? I have actually seen all of those things. Uh, I did see The (laughs) Labyrinth in high school. Wasn't impressed by it. Um, Sorry everybody. Um, I (laughs) did love The NeverEnding Story. I loved both parts, actually, one and two. Um, And Farscape we did for the show. And if you've listened to those episodes or when you listen to those episodes, Amanda, um, you will discover that I absolutely loved it. Fantastic. I can't wait to get to those. That's good. Okay. (laughs) So so you're comfortable with this kind of non-human but practical character interacting with human characters. Okay. Yes. Good. So that very much sums up The Dark Crystal. Did you enjoy The Dark Crystal? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) You're just ripping that Band-Aid off as fast as possible, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) Don't ask me that question. Okay, I will say, so while I was watching it, I was really disappointed because I I hoped, like beyond hope, that I was going to love it since everybody else loves this movie. Um, But I was struggling to get through it. Um, it was, it was tough. Um, but I was watching it narratively, you know, for the story and, and for what emotions it could evoke for investment in the characters and those sorts of things. And there, there are things I never experienced through it. I was like, Jen is the dumbest character in the planet. There's like no actual story here, which we will get to in our conversation. And so from that perspective, I didn't enjoy it. From the perspective of uh, the technical aspects that you guys have already gushed about a little bit, I did. I mean, it was beautiful. It, it was clearly well done. The puppets were amazing, you know. And and, and so I I can see the scope of just how well done this movie was. But as a movie that I watched, I did not enjoy it as an experience. I'm so sorry. Good. <laughs> okay. I will say, so I did find, and I think you guys are going to talk about some of this a little bit later. Um, I will um, have Matthew link to this in the show notes. I found, I went and started Googling after this because I was like, why is this something people like so much? I just don't understand. And I found on sci-fi.com one of those thought docs like mine. So it was somebody did... Um, X number of 65 thoughts they had while they were watching The Dark Crystal. And it, it made me appreciate it a little bit more because they commented so much on how really Kira is the star of this movie and not Jen. <laughs> and so once mm. I started thinking about that, I could appreciate it a little bit more. And I know, Amanda, you wanted to talk about that, so I'm not going to steal that from you. But I, I want to <laughs> just say up front that after seeing that perspective from somebody else, I can sit back and say, okay, if I watch this movie slightly differently than it was intended, then it it's okay, maybe? 
Yeah, I think I think there's a very important thing with this film of coming to it at the right age. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it can come across as heavily derivative, as I've already hinted at, um, of other material, and it's fairly simple in places as well. Mm-hmm. So if you come to it and go, "Oh, this is magical and beautiful," and and it's even more magical and beautiful than than a, a sort of special effect laden film or an animated film because it's all real and tangible. I, I think it's more enjoyable because you can appreciate it for that. But if you're coming to it now and going, oh, hey, puppets, cool. And it's a tech demo for those puppets. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> it's it less grabbing, perhaps. And I think you make a really good point there, Matthew, with regards to the age that you come to this story. Mm. Um, I came to this story very, very young. And to me, as I'm reflecting more and more on why I like this movie so much it really speaks to me as a fairy tale from my childhood. This is a a story I grew up on. It's got very mythic themes, but not a whole lot of narrative oomph to Mm. it. And to me, it's almost like a children's picture book brought to screen. Okay. I like that perspective. So I don't go to this movie necessarily for a lot of depth in the narrative right now. I go to it much more for the visual and that sense of nostalgia. But I think that as a child, it's an incredibly appealing movie. I guess, I don't know. I I have a hard time with that idea too, because this movie was freaking terrifying. As an adult watching this movie, (laughs) it was freaking horrifying in so many places. And so I'm sitting here thinking, like, have things that I think are kid appropriate, have they changed that much since the 80s? And maybe they have. But I just cannot imagine, like, an eight or nine-year-old going to a movie theater and watching this. Well, I can speak to that because they recently re-released The Dark Crystal for two weekends to some of the local theaters Hmm. a few months back. And I went to a showing of it because why wouldn't you? And and sitting next to me was a man who had brought his son who was maybe four or five years old. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And I was a little panicked. (laughs) Because I remembered how delightfully scared this movie had made me, and I was afraid for this child. But he sat through the whole thing and was entranced and didn't seem scared at all. His big question was, why are there three sons? Okay, interesting. Okay, see, I just know nothing about children. That That's the thing. Everything I think I know about children is wrong. Okay. And I I think it speaks, too, to Jim Henson when he created this movie. He purposefully wanted to have darker themes because he felt like children can be scared. And that's an okay emotion for children to feel. Mm. And it's okay for them to have the whole gamut of emotions. I think that's fair. But I think it was a little heavy handed. But that's just me. I, I wonder if there's something in the alien nature of it that makes it um, uh, an accessible scariness. You know, it, it's uh, monstrous in places, the Skeksis and the, the Beetle things, whose names I now can't remember. Um, Gartham. The Gartham. Gartham. Mm-hmm. I was trying to... Gethry? No, that's not it. Um, <laughs> they, they are scary, but they are uh, arguably not something that exists in that way. Um, on Earth, certainly, and compare it to the sort of scariness of of you know grown up monster movies and the the Alien from Alien and so on, uh, which are genuinely scary but are preying on more primal fears of the darkness and being hunted. Whereas this is just a fairy tale, Grimm's fairy tales type uh, darkness. Okay, I can accept that. Yeah, I think that. I think the most scary parts of it for me as a child and kind of growing up were the scene where they have the trial by stone and they're exiling the Chamberlain and they're ripping all his clothes to shreds and then ostracizing him, which to me, what they did to him was scarier than killing him, honestly. Yeah, it really sets up their kind of vile evilness. 
because it's it's a really harsh thing to to you know send someone naked into the world in in exile like that, and it's it really does set up of okay, these guys do not care. They don't just kill him; they want to punish just because mm-hmm. he failed to become emperor. That's interesting. That's not what I thought the scariest part was. <laughs> But it's, I mean, it is. What did you think the scariest was? It is similar in nature because, again, it doesn't involve them killing. They didn't actually kill anybody in this movie. Um, it mm. was when they took the life essence from the podling. And, and the scene where mm. the podling was actually transformed, like, that was scary to me as, a, yeah. as an adult, you know, as an almost 36-year-old woman. That was horrifying to me. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's that's the gif that I used when I was complaining about the terrifying puppets on Twitter last night. I pulled that one because that was the one that stuck with me, the way they made the eyes like go white and the purple and the red reflection. Yeah, it was creepy. I was particularly interested to watch that scene in my most recent rewatch because of what they had talked about in terms of the practical effect for that, that they had used needles shooting milk into the eyeballs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's much scarier. <laughs> <laughs> From behind and they could control that way they could remove it very quickly and they could make it go in very quickly to create that milky effect to the eyes. And I just thought that was a delightful behind the scenes practical effect piece. Practical effects amaze me. Honestly, more than special effects do because you have to find a real world way to make these things happen. Mm. And you have to be so creative. And I am not that creative. I would never be able to figure out how to do this stuff. It's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, because again, now they just do that with CJ. Yeah. But knowing like, oh, that actually happened. The thing did that. Excellent. Marvel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's let's talk about the the story and the writing itself. Um, I'm not even sure it fulfills the hero's journey enough because he doesn't kind of return he just goes wandering and people help him along his way um i i had a memory of basically nothing happening of it being they walk there <laughs> have an incident and then he puts the crystal back together um but actually watching it this time i'm like no there aren't things that happen on on the path no, there's just not- nothing happened in this movie <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> you, you- well can can we say that jen made nothing happen well yes yeah <laughs> Because really, he's the nominal hero of the story, but he never would have made it past Agra's without Kira. Mm. And to my mind, this is basically a Muppet version of A New Hope. A farm boy leaves home to find adventure. He meets a lot of scary looking creatures. And a princess who knows more than he will ever learn saves his bacon 100% of the time. Yeah, you are 100, 1,000% correct there. And, and it's like, I really want to draw parallels to a Lord of the Rings or a Narnia or, or even the Grim Fairy Tales because fantasy sort of fits with fantasy. But yeah, this is taking a lot from Star Wars. Um, and especially the bit where the Podlings village is attacked and then he throws the shard away. It's like, mm-hmm. like no, 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 no. Her people have just been taken. You do not get to mope. You mopey moper. <laughs> and it... <laughs> It just reminds me of um, Luke being like, oh, I really miss Obi-Wan that I've just met. (laughs) And you have Leia comforting him when her people have died. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's the same thing, too. When the Gartham steal the podlings, her concern is for Jen's arm or Mm. whatever, and and not the the family that's been taken. Uh, And that part does not sit well with me. Um, because we have Kira, who is a great character. She is very well versed in the languages of all the people and the animals around her. She's very intelligent. She knows how to get stuff done. She knows about the Skeksis and has all this knowledge. And yet she's still not the hero of the story. The hero is this kind of bumbling, clueless <laughs> man boy. <laughs> who drops the shard. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> And she has to save the day once again, <laughs> resulting in her death. <laughs> Which, because it's a fantasy story, doesn't stick. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, can, can somebody please explain something to me? 
Uh, Jen was raised by the mystics who, by very definition of this tale, is part of the origin story of, of this whole quest thing. He was raised by them. How does he not know what the Dark Crystal is? How does he not know who the Skeksis are? How does he not know that what he's supposed to do when he finds the shard is take it to fix the big crystal? How are these things that have somehow passed him by? Because <laughs> he sits naked by a river playing with his pipe. That's not a euphemism. I know, but still, how? Like, how are you raised by these people whose lives were fundamentally affected by this crystal and not know what it is? Like, that makes no sense to me. Like, the world building in this story made no sense to me, and it was frustrating. I can definitely see how that would be a frustrating take on it. My read on the the Skeksis and the Mystics division is that with the splitting of their fundamental traits, the Mystics are solely focused on their spiritual aspects. And they're so far removed from the day-to-day mundanity of life, they don't even care it's like they're caught in this inertia of stillness and ritual that they just engage in day after day and they really don't even care about the outside world i don't know why they even pick jen up honestly um because they seem to have such little caring for the physical pieces of the world i wonder if they already knew the prophecy when they picked him up and that's why hmm maybe Do you think the Podlings might have known the prophecy and thought it was going to be Kira? Well, not going to be. It should have been Kira, but but no. Yeah, the, the Mystics are kind of living their Burning Man lives, um, <laughs> co- communing and in, enjoying things. Uh, and I, I suspect they're not actually teaching him necessarily. It's just only at the point at which, okay, he has to know it because we now know this is where um, the Great Conjunction happens. So it's a, a big inflection point of the life of this planet. Mm. Yeah, I think I don't know. They they knew, they even knew where to go get the shard, and it, it was just frustrating. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. There really just is not a whole lot of narrative there. There, and when there is narrative, they're telling us stuff that we already know. Jen's <laughs> internal dialogue. Oh my god! So. I think one of my thoughts was, I was just repeating what he said. This is what I came for. The Dark Crystal. The Three Suns. The Shard. Like, really? That's just some bang-up writing right there. Sure, Jen. Sure. Yes. (laughs) I think the the best is the, I'm not ready to go alone. And then two beats... (laughs) Alone, then. <laughs> yeah. He did that a couple of times, and I thought it was hysterical. Mm-hmm. It's not great, but it's funny. <laughs> and, and, and by the end, I guess I did get a little bit invested because I did literally win. So when at the very end, when Kara and, and Jen are both in the chamber, you know, I'm just I'm sitting here going, just run and jump, dude. Come on, you can run and jump. And then he did. And then he dropped a shard. <laughs> And then he gets the dang crystal because Kira threw it at him and they stabbed her. And, you know, instead of catching the crystal and immediately putting it in the hole, he just stops and he's just sitting there watching Kira die, which I kind (laughs) of understand. But I am literally yelling at the TV at this point. Oh, my God, just heal the crystal. So I guess I got a little bit invested in the story. Well, I think they keep you hanging in that moment um, because I think it's supposed to be that precise moment when the three suns align that he's got to put the shard in right then. Otherwise, it's not going to work. But it does drag on. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I did get to the point where I wanted him to heal the crystal. So there there were some good things that came out of this. I don't want everybody to think I just hate it. 
Yeah, and it would be totally okay if you did absolutely hate it too. <laughs> you know, you gotta, like, certain things are not for everybody. That is true. But I do think that this brings up um, another point that could have made this a more interesting movie. Um, I referenced earlier the video of the Skeksis talking in an alien language. Mm. And originally, when the movie was filmed, all of the creatures except for the Gelflings spoke in alien languages. And then they tested the movie with preview audiences, and it tested so poorly. Um, folks were coming back saying they didn't understand what was happening. So all of the dialogue for the movie of the other creatures aside from the Gelflings was rewritten in English. Very painstakingly um, matching English words to the already filmed mouth movements of the puppets. Okay. Which I think leads us to some of the maybe stranger dialogue choices <laughs> in some of the scenes that um, that just seem silly. I hate um, your whimper. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whimper was still in. Okay. <laughs> in the original version. <laughs> But having watched those scenes with the alien language piece, I think I would have liked the movie better if they had just kept to that. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the original idea for it and, the, and that thing of having different languages and showing the different uh, parts of this world and how they work, it would have evoked a really strong sort of fairy tale feel. It would have felt like um, a Studio Ghibli film. Which is, is almost the closest thing I can compare this to. This kind of kind of scary, kind of grown up, a bit coming of age, but also very fantastical. Um, Mandy, you remember Spirited Away? It's got a lot of that being evoked in it. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you imagine the beginning has this, the, the long narrative of, you know, the, the dying race, dying emperor and so on. Um, and, and all about the ritual. That if they just intercut the the three things going on, Jen and the Mystics and the Skeksis, to show they're all kind of going through the same thing at the same time, it could have come together. It could have really evoked like there's a lot going on here, but in different ways. But instead, they write this narrative, which is very well written about you know today the ritual brings no comfort, today the um, the pipe brings no comfort. They, they're uh, using the same language for each different group, but it's delivered so matter-of-factly, it doesn't really land, it doesn't sort of evoke that, oh, there's really interesting things, there's parallels, and we've got a juxtaposition set up straight away. It's just, I'm giving you exposition here, and today the ritual brings no comfort. <laughs> okay, thanks, narrator dude. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And I think in thinking about why I like this movie so much, it is the visuals of it. It's so mm. beautiful. I mean, down to every last detail, they worked really hard to make this a fully fleshed out world. And I I would almost be happy just watching the movie with the um with the soundtrack. You know, no vocals whatsoever, because mm. I would still get a lot of enjoyment out of it because the music is amazing. I think the score for it, anytime I hear those opening notes, my heart swells a little bit, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it gives me this this real tangible sense of childlike delight mm -hmm. when I hear that music. So I think to watch the movie just for the visual pieces of it. You could have the Skeksis in talking in their alien language and still understand what's going on. And it might not be quite as goofy at times. Um, and I think the the emotional pieces might actually land a little stronger if we're relying more so on our own interpretation of what's being said. Yeah, it's a little uh, difficult to emote with the mystics at times because they're just so placid. But they did get the good guy death with the sparkles and the fading away rather than the bad guy death of just turning into dust. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know I'm, I'm serious. Like they didn't, like they, there was no emotion in the way they spoke, but at least they did something to kind of help us mm. see which direction things are going 
Yes, it was a very clear visual signal between how they treated the two deaths of who were the good guys and who were the not so good guys. And and the good guy gets to take all his uh, artifacts with him. They're sent to him <laughs> yeah. in the afterlife. It's lovely. Uh, but do you really want luggage in the afterlife? <laughs> I don't think I want to be weighed down. That's fair. <laughs> no, I think I want my podcast set up so I can still podcast in the afterlife. <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely idea. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've completely derailed the conversation. <laughs> uh, we had some tweets from our friend uh, Lauren at Six Legged Knits, uh, who you might remember was a huge Farscape fan as well. So um, of little surprise is this is one of my three, the three movies of my childhood. The other, other two are Labyrinth and The Princess Bride. I have always been completely blown away by the artistry and the detail of the world. While the story is fairly simple, I th- think that's a good thing. It allows the world to bloom. Mm. Uh, I think that matches very much what we're saying. Like when you can just mm-hmm. enjoy what's being presented on screen to you. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, she goes on, there is a children's museum in Pittsburgh where you can see some of the puppets from the movie, including one of the mystics. And I remember that every time we went, I would go and just stare into that case, taking the details until made to move on by impatient siblings. And then even when you learn how it's done, it's still amazing. The innovations in puppetry that start right here make so much more possible, including, of course, my beloved Farscape. And I'm with John. Halosians will always be the Skeksis to me. I totally understand that now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, but I can't wait. <laughs> it is no, not only is it a heavy dark crystal reference, it's one of the best Farscape episodes it's done in. So <laughs> terrific. Yeah. Um even as an adult, I think it stands up. I find Augra in particular more irritating now than I did as a kid, mostly because I just hear Frank Oz and Yoda. But overall I find the thematic implications of resolution really interesting. The holy good mystics are weak and lack ambition. The holy evil Skeksis, destructive to the point of their own destruction. Only when combined is their balance, ambition tempered with generosity. Destructive to their own destruction is a bit tautological. Exploitative to their own destruction would be better, especially since as a continually falling population, they would have to be really greedy to wreck things that badly. Though, sadly, as an adult, I realise the Gelflings are still screwed as erased. My biologist brain cannot help noticing that two is not a sustainable population. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, those are all delightful comments. Yeah, so basically every point, yeah, 100%. (laughs) But that that whole thing about the balance, the two sides of the the creatures, when when you start feeling that, because it's set up a little bit, like I say, with the narration in the beginning and the two rituals and bringing no satisfaction and then the death of the wisest and the death of the emperor. But then as we go through and you see the injury on both of them together and you see one disappearing when one dies and they gradually merge. And, and it's it's really interesting how everything in this world has another side. They lean on it with Kira having wings. And it's like, well, of course you don't have wings. You're a boy. Like even there, we're we're drawing a very clear a one and a zero or or two sides of a coin, that kind of thing. And it's it's a really nice way to do a film. I just feel like they could do more with it. It's just a isn't it interesting when there are two sides to things? Mm-hmm. So listening to you talk about all of this stuff and and hearing all of Lauren's comments, like I I feel like I'm really interested in this world, and I want to see it done more and better than how they did it. Hmm. Is, is kind of where I'm coming because I I really just don't think they did it very well from a story perspective of being interested in what they were trying to tell me. But now listening to all of the things that, that you guys have brought into it, I can see all of those things. And now I'm kind of really interested to see what Netflix is going to do with it because seeing this story or at least this world brought to life in 2018 or 2019 is going to give me a lot more of, of the information that I want to see. I imagine it's going to be much more heavy on the CGI rather than the puppetry, which will really take away from it if that's what the direction they go in. But I, I'm really interested now because I, I kind of do want to see more of this world that they created in a way where I'm invested and fulfilled by it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to the new Netflix show, but I have that same hesitation. Uh, you know, are we going to see the practical pieces that make this movie so incredibly special, or is it going to be a reliance on CGI more than anything? Well, they're still working with the Hensons, and so I would hope that they would rely very heavily on puppetry. Agreed. Yeah. Because there's nothing more special about this movie than the puppets themselves, because they're the stars. Yeah. Mm. I'd be surprised if not, because um, certainly a lot of the stuff that Disney have done with Star Wars, it's all been about trying to do more practical effects and, and sort of understanding when they did the Star Wars prequels, too many digital effects makes it a less interesting film. And, and it's yeah. there's a real culture mm -hmm. for it these days. That is a really excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just to follow up on the point about the museum in Pittsburgh, the uh, Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle uh, usually has some Dark Crystal things on display. They have one of the maquettes for the Mystics, so you can see them up close as well uh, and other things. So everyone out on the uh, Pacific Northwest should go and visit. And I think there's, um, is it the Museum of Motion Picture, maybe, in New York? Mm -hmm. uh, has, I believe they have a Skeksis and some other pieces of the, the Dark Crystal there as well. So I'm looking forward to my next trip to New York because I'm going to stop off there. Oh, excellent. We will look forward to pictures, I'm sure. Indeed. Probably won't be for a few months, but I'll get there eventually. Fab. Um, so, so we've taken the film apart a little bit, um, in, in, in not the nicest way. There are bits of it lying around us, but some of those bits are very, very good. Mandy, did you find things in this that you would say, this is wonderful, this is my favourite, I loved this about the film? I did. I did. I had a few favourite <laughs> moments, you know, it, you know, and even though I, I keep coming back to how much I dislike the story, I did think that the puppetry was masterful. Those practical effects were masterful, and visually mm. it was stunning like i enjoyed looking at it um from from the first moment like i guess i didn't really understand how awesome it was until we got the first shot of jen you know we had seen the creepy skexies and then we had seen kind of the mystics but then we get that shot of jen playing the pan flute and i was just thinking wow this is beautiful and i've never seen a puppet done quite so well um, later, I kind of walked back on that a little bit with some of the stuff they did with Jen, but I thought overall it was beautifully done and the cinematography was great. Oh, I was just going to say in reference to the puppets, they implemented some new technology with this movie. Um, traditionally, puppets had been made out of latex rubber and they created a foam latex that they would overlay over fiberglass skulls to create a more flesh-like texture to all of the, the puppets used in this. And I think it was incredibly successful. Mm. That actually makes a lot of sense because I remember thinking that, that Jen and Kara both looked so much more lifelike than the Muppets do. Like, from their facial structure to the way their skin looked, like, they didn't look like felt puppets, which is what we're accustomed to from the Hensons. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, and they did talk about going through lots of iterations of the Jen and Kira puppets trying to find the perfect look for them because Jim Henson wanted something very classical and they just couldn't get it right and couldn't get it right and felt like they were walking a bit of the uncanny valley before hmm. that term was was actually coined with Jen and Kira because they're supposed to be the characters that bridge the gap for us as humans coming into this world and because they looked human-ish but not quite it was throwing some people out of the um the movie itself in oh, the interesting. experience yeah okay because yeah they have a nice uh, kind of elf-like thing going on mm -hmm. yeah nice um and and there was a great line agra had a great line she had a couple of really great lines but uh my <laughs> favorite was when uh the skexies had got her the uh the gartham i can't remember the crab creatures mm -hmm. the crab beetles whatever they were they brought her in and they expected her to be a gelfling and she's like, 
Of course I'm no ghostling, you putrid lizards! <laughs> I cracked up. She had some great lines. She was very um, aggressive. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I think moldy mildew mother of mouth muck is my absolute favorite that she says. <laughs> That's pretty great. And I'm just going to say, you know, say that five times fast and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> she she is quite a well-realized character because she feels obviously completely separate from the a lot of the story that's going on, this thing about the crystal. She's doing her own thing and perhaps has been around for a lot of that time but has her own quirks and personality traits where a lot of the, mm-hmm. certainly the the uh, mystics don't get any development really. The podlings are Ewoks um, and just sort of happy little <laughs> bouncy creatures. But Algra as, as a secondary character is really well done. Agreed. She's my absolute favorite from the entire movie. I aspire to be her. She is my patroness. <laughs> oh, okay. Excellent. That, that's pretty great. Um, what else did you really like from this movie? One of my favorite things was the whole banquet scene where we see all the Skeksis and they're just consuming all of this food in this gluttonous display that is so revolting. And yeah, it's so fascinating because they have these beautiful metal instruments on the tips of their fingers that they're using to eat the food with and it's just the attention to detail in that scene oh, i could watch it over and over again how interesting i could not because it was gross <laughs> See, <laughs> that's fantastic that, that scene in particular i think they're just showing off because it i I, mm-hmm. uh, I think it opens with a shot of all of them there so it's like okay there's probably like 15 puppeteers hidden in this scene doing different things all at the same time. And then we're going to have a wind-up toy run across it and one of them catch it and eat it in a shot. Like, okay, this is quite impressive. So I read that each Skeksis took six puppeteers to control. Wow. There were two actually in the suit and then they had four on a platform underneath to work everything else. So that's, I mean, there were, I guess after the emperor died, there were nine, nine left. That's, that's a lot of puppeteers all mm. in one scene. Yeah. And I think it's really important just to, to call out the amazing physicality of the work that the puppeteers did in this show. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they would physically, you know, the Skeksis and the Mixsticks were formed by having one hand up inside the head of the creature and the other arm manipulating one of the arms and then the second person would manipulate the other arm Uh, but just to think of being in that position with your arm above your head holding onto this heavy frame for hours at a time it just blows my mind the the amazing work that those performers did oh yeah um i also read that the the gartham suits were so heavy they had to stop and rest every five minutes for the performers that were in it. And I, I can't imagine. Not a bit. And then the, the Landstrider puppets were created on stilts where the actors were on stilts on their feet and stilts on their hands. Mm-hmm. And they were able to run and jump and manipulate that in a way that is amazing. And also completely creepy because the Landstriders are the creepiest thing in this movie. <laughs> Hands down for me. <laughs> there, there is something unnerving about a, a creature that's quite so pale. Mm-hmm. Well, and his, their faces were weird too. Like you expect, especially as a child, when you're watching a fairy tale, you expect visual cues of the good guys are going to be pleasing to the eye and the bad guys are not. And you don't get that at all in this movie. You, you know, the Gelflings and the Podlings are cute, but the... The Skeksis clearly are not, but then the Mystics are kind of in between, but, you know, they're supposed to be good. And then we're told that the Landstriders are good. But if you had just seen one, you would think, oh, they're a bad guy. Like, they didn't keep yeah, but- that those visual cues that you expect in a fairy tale. No, they look like elongated, monstrous bunnies. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
to tie this into Buffy, because I know we have to do that, right? Um, (laughs) Anya would have hated the Landstriders. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But I don't know that she would have stood on a chair to get away from them because that would have gotten her closer to his face. (laughs) Wow. She probably would have rooted for the Gartham. Yeah, actually, yeah. And Yunker would have been a, a Landstrider herder or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, Matthew, it's you're up. What are your favorite things from the movie? So the one thing we've not really gone into detail on is the Chamberlain, the, the villain of the piece, who <laughs> is one of my favorite villains from everything ever. Um, okay. I, I love the noise. The the noise is possibly the first time I realized that when a film was made, they weren't just making it and putting it out into the world and hoping it was okay. They would actually think about how people were going to receive it. And the first time I sort of clocked of, oh, they've given him a noise so that we know who is the Chamberlain because they all kind of look alike. Mm-hmm. So it's a really nice way to have a, a character uh, trait, quirk, tick, that we that allows us to sort of track him through. And, and the, the typical thing of you see when people get a scar or, you know, some sort of item of clothing or something that allows us to differentiate characters when they're quite similar. That's a really nice way of doing it because they even call attention to it with like, I hate your noise. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I am known to wander around doing that every so often. <laughs> but he's <laughs> he is a wonderful number two. Clearly, you know, manipulative, out for his own efforts. And, and even when he the way he tries to capture Jen by pretending to be good and reel him in. But I am friend. Save you from Gotham. Why? Don't listen to him. It's a trick. No, please. Must listen. I'm outcast. If I make peace, I'm outcast no more. It's not too subtle, but he's doing more than anyone else. Um, and, and better than the Gartham attacking them. And it's just, he makes the mistake of trying to become the number one, trying to become the emperor. And given that it's a trial by stone, that it's a trial of strength, the general, mm. the big Skeksis, is clearly going to be the one who wins that. So I don't even know why he goes along with it at that point, rather than saying, oh, I'll back you up. Just let me be your advisor or something. Right. Mm-hmm. But I love him. I think he's wonderful. I think he's so well fleshed out and detailed in his characteristics, in his thinking, and the way we sort of see him at different points figuring out the world and doing stuff with it. It's wonderful. Excellent. I think he's completely delightful. Um, mm. <laughs> the the whimper that he does. Sometimes I highly enjoy it. Sometimes it grates on my nerves. Oh, really? <laughs> but it's always a fabulous um, just character beat. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, when we're learning who is who, it just it helps so much because we don't quite have enough detail on them to know which is which. It's certainly in those early stages when they're all clustered together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it holds up to rewatch value because when you can take it all in and then look and pick apart the details as you're watching through it, mm. the subtle things that they've done to differentiate each of the Skeksis are it, so well done. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about the Dark Crystal? Well, I just had one last behind the scenes tidbit that I thought was really adorable. Um, Brian Froud, who was one of the creative conceptual designers of the Dark Crystal, met his wife, Wendy Meidner, on set. She was actually the doll maker who was in charge of creating the faces for Kira and for Jen. And they met there and married and worked together for many years. Oh, that's very sweet. Ah. There, there is something about all the Henson productions that have happy stories. People stay working on in this world for years and years, or, or in that company for years and years, and do different jobs and meet their friends. And when you see the outpouring of love for, obviously, when Jim Henson passed, but just they're all so friendly and they get on so well and they clearly love what they do. It's, it's it, a good thing when you see them making something because they are a... Uh, a watermark of high quality. Absolutely. 
you know, to see that many people enjoying each other's company and the work that they do and the creativity that they seem to feed off of mm. with each other is, you don't really see that in many other industries. Absolutely. So Amanda, Mandy has a giant list of things she's never seen. Do you have any favorite films that you would recommend we seek out and put on the list? I have a few. Absolutely. Um, in kind of the theme of childhood fantasy that's also terrifying, I would recommend The Last Unicorn. Well, that's a way to sell it. It's also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly beautiful animation. Um, Mia Farrow's in it, Jeff Bridges, Angela Lansbury. They all do the voices. Um, okay. Well, that sounds oh a little goodness, better. I'm the, the main guy. Uh, Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee's in it. Okay. He's fantastic. Um, it's a great cartoon. Mm -hmm. I think you might be the third person who's recommended it now. So I think at this point, we probably have to put it on the list. I think Jen and Caitlin have both said we should watch it. So <laughs> Fantastic. That is a movie that I make everyone in my life watch at some point or another. So <laughs> definitely The Last Unicorn. I know you guys did a lot of Christmas specials um, last year. So I would put forth for this year's Christmas, uh, Will Vinton's Claymation Christmas. If you haven't seen it, hmm. haven't even heard I haven't. of it. No, <laughs> it's um, it's from 1987, and it features the California raisins. At one point, it's pretty <laughs> hysterical, and I love it. I watch it every Christmas. Okay, and then along with your documentary, kind of tipping your toes into that world, I would recommend Into the Inferno, which is a documentary on volcanoes by Werner Herzog. That sounds interesting. Oh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Some of the shots that they get of the volcanoes are amazing. Okay. Okay. I think they're going on the so list. those are my recommendations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at EloquentGushing. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. We're both on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us um, and helping to convince Mandy that there is worth in here, that it is good in its way. <laughs> it's It's been really, really fun having you on. Um, where can people find you in the world? Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this. I can be found on Twitter at underscore Amanda313. And I'm also the Slytherin co-host of the Wine and Three Quarters podcast. Yeah, Slytherin's rule. Um, <laughs> so you, what, what did you say? You're about to start covering The Fringe or you're partway through it? We've covered season one of Fringe. Hmm. We're moving on to season two in the next couple of weeks, we'll be recording our episodes around that. So, And we've already done season one of The Expanse. Season two, I'm sure, will be coming up soon as well. Okay. Uh, what else have you covered in the past? <laughs> oh, my gosh. We have a bit of a breakdown where each of the four of us select the topic mm -hmm. each week in a rotation. So my episodes tend to focus on personal growth, goals, things like that. Um, we also do some fan casts we talk about uh foods that we really like we've done potlucks together we recently went to roller derby for the first time and podcasted about that oh fun uh, we've read some amazing books um that i can't think of the titles to any of them right now but um, <laughs> um we put you on the spot haven't we <laughs> I, I know i did not prepare for this um but coming up soon we're going to be talking about the geek feminist revolution book by cameron hurley so that's something we're all looking forward to talking about oh terrific uh, so we bounce around a lot of different things <laughs> And we are also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at wine um, and 3Q. So W-I-N-E-A-N-D, numeral three, letter Q. Okay, perfect. Soon to have a website, but not yet. <laughs> Excellent. It's always fun to hear friends having fun and discussing interesting things. So awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you give gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop other shows. If you want to find out more, please visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to visit our homepage where you can find the other shows on the network and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Go to eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about the movie Flatliners. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I suffered horrible searing pain. <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. <laughs>